If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. We'll read from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become very great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angel urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disasters overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant to you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You could turn to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter. 
We bring the letter of 1 Peter to a close this morning. If you're going to write a letter to someone, it's good practice to make sure that the person to whom you are writing knows why you are writing. (laughs) It's not a terrible idea to close with that in such a way that it is left beyond the shadow of a doubt in the minds and the hearts of your recipients, the purpose for which you have sent them your letter. And that is what Peter does. So, those of you who are just joining us today, it's not a bad day to join because you really get a summary of the whole letter in three verses. So we're going to be here for about five hours. I'm just kidding. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord remains forever. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. How excellent is your word, O Lord. Sweeter than honey. More to be desired than gold. By it your servant is corrected and led. And by it the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted as the one in whom grace and peace and truth and love are extended into a merciless, deceitful, and cruel world. We give you thanks for this letter, brief as it is, but rich, indeed inexhaustible, for it sets forth the inexhaustible riches of who you are and what you have done, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Attend the preaching of the word even now with heavenly blessing, shedding light into hearts that are dim, building us up to know that these things are true, that we have not believed in vain. And indeed, the one who has begun a good work in it will see it through. We thank you for these things and ask that even now you would be at work accomplishing them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, we meet a desperate family during the difficulties and the crisis of the Dust Bowl. The land had been destroyed, the land that had formerly provided life, indeed, had yielded its riches to sustain them. There was no longer any possibility of life from it. There was no longer any possibility of living on that land. And so they had to decide what to do, this family. And there had been reports circulating throughout the region. Indeed, the whole region had been coated with flyers saying what? There's life. There's work. There's fruit in California. 
There is life in the West. A veritable Eden of God awaits anyone who undertakes the journey to go there. The family is suspicious. They wonder how such a thing could be. But what choice did they have? So they set off. And what did they find? More of the same, really. The same dust in Oklahoma was the fruit of California that was kept from them, which could not sustain them, and indeed sat at the heart of a world of exploitation, corruption, and more death. There are many false messiahs, are there not, in this world of dust and ashes, this world of abundance that fades? There's more false gospels than we can enumerate, are there not? Many empty promises of life, satisfaction, joy, peace, something that will endure, and all of it is just that. A lie. Variations on the same futility everywhere on display around us, whether in dust or abundance. And it seems that the more chaotic that life feels, the more vulnerable we are to clamor after the false messiahs, the false gospels, and the lie that finally there is a way out. Peter closes his letter with a resoundingly clear message. I greet you from Babylon. And the greetings I bring are different from every message that resounds throughout the empire, both here and at the outskirts. And the message is simple. Jesus Christ is the true grace of God. Jesus Christ is the one who brings true peace. Jesus Christ is the one who brings something different, something that remains. And I am not the only one who sees this and knows this. I, Peter, stand amidst a great cloud of witnesses, both past, present, and future, saying the exact same thing. This is the true grace of God, Jesus Christ set forth for sinners. I testify to you that it is true. And not only that, the truth of this testimony has sustained pilgrims, sustained sojourners from old, as God's good purposes are brought to pass in those making an earthly pilgrimage in whatever iteration of Babylon they may be found. That is the plain purpose of this letter, to encourage by truth, to set your hope entirely, not upon an iteration of Babylon, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise that he is coming. He is coming. He is coming. So let's ask three questions this morning. First, why does Peter write? Second, who sends their greetings? And third, how do they greet and why? First, why does Peter write? Peter writes briefly 
to exhort by way of testimony. Testimony to the true grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he says explicitly. I have written to you briefly by way of Silas, a faithful brother as I consider him, encouraging and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In an age that is characterized by disinformation, misinformation, I don't know, whatever words people are using to characterize their raging suspicion towards everyone who claims anything, Peter pierces through all of the noise and says, this is true. You could build a life on it. You could lay down a life for it. It is true, and it is wonderful, and it has been extended unto ruined and lost sinners. So what is the true grace of God? With the broadest level, it's everything that he's written in the letter. <laughs> this entire portrait with its truth about what God has done for sinners, in whom he's done it, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and how it has come to the church by way of the preaching of the gospel, the gathering of the church, and the sustaining of the church through all manner of fiery trial. But more narrowly still, the true grace of God is Jesus Christ, elect and precious, but rejected and despised. Both of those aspects are encompassed under the truth that this is the true grace of God. And that's significant because why? He's been laboring for the whole course of his lecture, his letter, my lecture, his letter, <laughs> sermon, it's not a lecture, the whole course of his letter to prove, to demonstrate that election and rejection are two sides of the same coin. That election and exile are two sides of the same coin, and it's seen chiefly in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means what? Both your blessings in Christ and the burdens that are generated in a life of following after Christ are both under the canopy of God's grace to you. The wonder of being born again, being set in God's family as those who are going to inherit an eternal inheritance. Wonder of wonders, every spiritual blessing abounding unto you. This is God's grace, and it is true. But what does that generate? It generates a life of unique difficulty, particularly for Peter's churches, who are under a suspicious eye from the world for that very purpose. For that very reason, bearing the name of Jesus Christ. So what does Peter say? He doesn't say, well, this is grace over here, and the difficulty that that generates over here is not grace. He says it's all grace. It's all connected. And the wonder is that the burdens that are being generated because you bear the name of Jesus Christ are actually serving your further blessing. And this is the image of the fire that refines that faith which is more precious than gold, which perishes, though it too is tested by fire. Peter says, it's all true. The wonder of blessing extended unto you. The difficulty that this blessing has generated 
for you. This is the grace of God. Though at times it is difficult, it is always wonderful. And so you can see how he seeks to encourage by way of testimony. That's what he says. I bear witness. I testify that this is true. Have you ever seen a courtroom scene? What do they ask the witness to do when they take the stand? I mean, in our own day, we still have this sort of ceremony, this vow that safeguards what comes forth from the witness stand as being true, as being strong enough and sure enough to determine the course of a life based on. Isn't that right? So what do they do? Put your hand on this book, lift your hand to heaven, and swear. I solemnly swear that what I say is the whole truth. How does it go? Nothing but the truth, only the truth, 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 truth. It's the truth. And that's what Peter does here. He puts himself forward as witness, as testimony. He says, I walked with him. I heard him. He spoke like no one else has ever spoken. I saw him. He touched a man and he was healed. He spoke to a man and he was raised from the dead. He took a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and he fed 5,000. And then he did it again. <laughs> he was crucified. I ran. And then I saw him three days later. I walked with him for 40 days. And then I watched him disappear with the promise that he's coming back. I saw it. I solemnly swear, it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I saw it. I wasn't alone. They saw it. We weren't alone. They all saw it. We're not alone. Silas saw it. He saw it. He saw it. Mark saw it. He saw it. He saw it. It's true. And it's encouraging because you've staked your life on it. You've staked your life on the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. You've staked your life on the claim that he alone brings pardon and peace. You've staked your life on the claim that he alone can give life and gives it freely to all who come from him. Be encouraged because it's true. Everything he says is true. Everything he did is true. And thus the life of difficulty that generates in the wake of following after such a one is worth it because he's true. I solemnly swear the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There's great encouragement in that. You're encouraged by the fact that Peter made it. He kept the faith until the end. You're encouraged by the fact that God's people, as they have looked unto him in faith, have been sustained by the truth that they profess through a bewildering diversity of difficult circumstances, a bewildering variety of hard seasons, variations on the valley of the shadow of death, variations on the presence of mine enemies, and that through it all, the truth has sustained that God saves his people, and he has been pleased to do so by the life and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, I'm writing to you so that you may be encouraged to press on 
That's the word he uses here, exhort, encourage. It means appeal to, press, urge, go on. You could think of a race, right? This is the image that's used in Hebrews. You're running a race and all along the side are witnesses saying you can do it. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Press on. It's worth it. We ran it. You're running it. He sustains. Keep on, keep on. It's true. It's beautiful. It's worth it. Don't shrink back. Press on. I'm writing to encourage you by way of my testimony. And then he turns to others, doesn't he? He sends greetings from Silas, Mark, and the church in exile. So we can ask second, who greets? Who greets alongside Peter? Believers, fellow exiles, those who are suffering the exact same thing for the sake of the one who has purchased them by his blood. Silas, Mark, the church in exile, all send greetings in the Lord, bearing further witness that these things are true and we have not believed in vain. I've written to you briefly by Silas, a faithful brother, as I reckon him. Silas or Silvanus, it's the same name, different versions of the same name. It's most likely the Silas that we meet in Acts 15, the one who bears the letter from Jerusalem to the Gentile churches. It's the Silvanus that we see at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, writing with Paul. For Silas ministered with Paul. He was arrested with Paul. He sang hymns in prison with Paul. And thus, he is further testimony that these things are true. And the suffering that befalls those who bear the name of Jesus Christ is no indication that you are forsaken. It's no indication that these things are not true. It's no indication that Jesus Christ is not Lord. In fact, they are verifications. <laughs> They are proof that indeed the truth is true. Silas brings this letter, and how does Peter commend him? He's a faithful brother. And this is kind of an aside, but what a beautiful commendation, isn't it? Now, the vision that would have been going on here is Peter writes through Silas, likely sending the letter brought by the hand of Silas. So the image here is Peter writing, Silas bringing, and then Silas explaining. Peter, some of these things are strange, hard. What did he mean by Jesus Christ proclaimed to the spirits enchained? Man, I wish Silas was here. But you got me instead. <laughs> but that's a point worth making. The vision of the church that Peter has just expounded in the letter is here being played out. That the word of God is that which is going to sustain God's people as it's being inspired by the Spirit through the pen of Peter, but by the same ministry of the Spirit, illuminating for Silas that explanatory work. The same ministry of the Spirit, illuminating the truth of God by this pulpit. And indeed, all pulpits where faithful servants declare the word of God. This is Christ's ministry to us. And how lovely this attribute. Notice what he doesn't say. I'm sending to you Silas, a wealthy brother. I'm sending to you Silas, a very attractive brother. I'm sending to you Silas, a charming and hilarious brother. 
I'm sending to you Silas, a charming brother. I'm sending to you Silas, an intelligent brother. I'm sending you Silas, an influential brother. All of those values and attributes which structure our world of value and worth in Babylon are flipped on their head right here. Forget all of it. He's a faithful brother. He's looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ. His faith has been tried. He sang songs in prison with Paul. He's entrusted himself entirely to the one who judges Justin. Listen to him. He's a faithful brother. Let it recalibrate our value structure. We're prone to listen to those who are influential. We're prone to listen to those who are wealthy. We're prone to listen to those who are blisteringly intelligent and golden of tongue. Doesn't mean that those gifts can't be employed in the service of the Lord, but they're not why we listen. They're not what entices the heart. What entices the heart? A faithful brother. Why? Because his faithfulness means he's setting forth the Lord Jesus Christ. Because who's he faithful to? The Lord. He serves as a faithful brother to the Lord. <laughs> and so this commendation of Silas is a verification that the church is indeed doing what it's supposed to do. It's evidence that these things are not made up. And the fact that one largely unexceptional brother stands before them who is making it is proof that these things are not believed in vain. But it's not just Silas. It's also Mark. Mark also sends greeting whom Peter calls my son. This is not Peter's biological son. <laughs> This is Peter's son in the faith. As Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, it means one nurtured in the faith, discipled in the faith, formed in the faith. And thus Peter can say, Mark, my son. Now it's not a coincidence that this letter has been dominated by a family metaphor, has it not? Born from God, children loving one another in familial affection. And here, Peter once more says, these things are true. We engage in these relationships meaningfully. Here, Mark set forth as one whom Peter has nurtured in the faith. And that's the model for us, isn't it? Paul writes to older men, what? Take younger men and nurture them in the faith. Teach them how to be Christians in a world that is difficult to be Christians in. What does he tell older women? Take the younger women and show them how to be Christian in a world in which it is difficult to be Christian. The metaphor of family is not a bare metaphor. It shapes our practice. The older men look at the younger men as those to whom they owe a responsibility. Fathers, what responsibility do you bear your children? To teach them how to live in the world. Mothers, what responsibility do you bear to your daughters? To teach them how to live in the world. Are you doing that? We're supposed to be. It's supposed to characterize our life together. Those who have walked faithfully with the Lord, who have learned of his sustaining grace, teach the next generation how practically to walk with the Lord, reliant upon his sustaining grace. You don't need a women's ministry or a men's ministry to do this. You just need to do life together intentionally. Learn the most about ministry from two godly brothers who just welcomed me into their lives. 
who showed me what it looked like to be a godly husband, a godly father, a godly pastor. There was no formal contract that we signed. There was no script that we followed. It was simply gleaning from the wisdom of an older generation that was willing to share its wisdom with the younger generation. And it's further testimony that it's true. This is God's good design. But it's also the fellow elect lady in Babylon. He writes, she who is at Babylon, who is co-elect, likewise chosen, that's fair, sends greetings. Hmm. The fellow elect lady in Exilon, in exile. Peter's not literally in Babylon. Babylon is essentially ruins at this point. Nobody's living in Babylon at the time that Peter's writing. He's not living in Babylon. He's speaking under a figure. Now, maybe he was in Rome. That's how most people have it. Peter is writing from Rome. John Calvin didn't like that because he was writing vehemently against the Roman Catholic Church. And so anything that whiffed of Rome, Calvin was like, erroneous! Easy. It's okay. He could be at Rome. Maybe he's at Rome. This doesn't validate the whole system you're trying to stand against. Just calm down, John. (laughs) But it really doesn't matter where he's writing from. Literally, it doesn't matter. Because where is the church in exile? Where is the church in exile? When is the church in exile? Somebody answer those questions for me rightly. Everywhere and anywhere and always the church is in exile. That's what he says. Elect exiles. Why are you exiles? Because you're elect. What happens when you're elect? Well, you're born from above. What is the birth from above? Eternal life. Why are you in exile here? Because it's all fading. And a principle of immortality burns within me that's only going to be at home when that which is immortal swallows up that which is mortal. There's no engineering away exile. We're always going to be strangers here. There's always going to be an ill at easedness in this world. Under Domitian, Marcus Aurelius, Constantine, under upright and just magistrates or crooked and cruel magistrates, under Republicans, under Democrats, under monarchies, under oligarchies. The metaphor of exile determines the life of the church in this world because we're elect and made participants in eternal life that exists only in the Son. Does that generate despair? No. It generates hope. It generates courage. It generates a face set towards heavenly Jerusalem, longing for our heavenly home and encouraging one another. It's greetings from a fellow elect. It's greetings from another exile. In uh, C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, have you read this one? C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair. Three travelers journey to the underworld to save a prince. And in the underworld, they begin to fall under the witch's spell. It's sickly sweet. It sounds so pleasant and seductive, and the spell is seeking to convince the travelers that there is no upper world, 
There is no sun. There is no sky. There is no Aslan. And if there had been one of them, they would have fallen. If there had been two of them, they would have fallen. But there were three of them. And when two of them fell, one of them said, this is nonsense. Of course there's an upper world. Of course there's a sun. Of course there's a blessing and a life that is incomparable to all the things in this lower world. Snap out of it. This isn't our home. Snap out of it. Our hope isn't tied to this age that is passing away. Snap out of it. You were made to dwell face to face with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in exile, but we're in exile together, encouraging all of us to set our hope entirely upon the grace that is to be revealed at the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we can love in earnest, isn't it? Because our hope isn't tied to this world of tumult, to this world that shakes and everybody's afraid. Our hope is secure. Our hope is firmly anchored beyond the veil, such that when this world royals, we walk atop the waves in faith and hope and love. Why? Because we look to the Lord of the waves. The one who made heaven and earth is our portion. And that's what Peter points us to. He says the reason that we can love one another is because we have peace with God in Jesus Christ. That's how he ends. He opens his letter with grace and peace, and he closes his letter with grace and peace. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The kiss of love. We'll touch on it briefly here just because you're all wondering. <laughs> Paul calls it a holy kiss. Peter calls it a kiss of love. Paul calls it a holy kiss because it's a physical expression of an invisible bond wrought by the Holy Spirit. Peter calls it a kiss of love because it's a physical expression of an invisible bond that's wrought in love, according to Peter's picture. And so this kiss of love is a visible expression of the invisible reality into which the church has been ushered as the children of God. As those who have been made recipients of the Father's love in Jesus Christ. And out of a knowledge and an understanding and a tasting of that love in the Lord Jesus Christ, what results? A life of love because of the stabilizing power that that confidence before God generates. Hearts can be geared in love towards one another. This fellowship in love is because of our fellowship with God. Every day I leave for work and five out of six days I get to the door and I hear a little voice from the table. What about our kiss? <laughs> so I put my bag down and I shuffle back to my family sitting around the breakfast table. Kiss, I love you. Kiss, I love you. Kiss, I love you. Kiss, I love you. It's as if the day couldn't possibly have unfolded without that expression of love. My heart's knit to theirs in the affection. This kiss actually became a part of the liturgy. Do you know where? 
Where does this kiss of love fit in our liturgy? At the table, the Lord's Supper, where the children are embraced most intimately by the Father in the Son with the Spirit testifying that these things are true, that we have communion with God in love and not just with God in love, but with one another as participants in the same love. The holy kiss of love is exchanged as a result of what God has done for us. Now, I'm not in good conscience going to exhort you to kiss each other. In the past, it was men kissed men, women kissed women. That was how it went down in the church. It became more of a token. But I can, in good conscience, exhort you against your Minnesotan tendencies to keep each other at arm's length. <laughs> it's not just Minnesotan. It's the American tendency because we are all steeped in the message of raging self-sufficiency, of raging self-reliance. The kiss of love here assumes a certain practical expression of a true bond of love that actually knits us together. And so I can encourage you to get to know one another, to bear the Christian's burdens together in this life of fellow exile, fellow sojourning. And I can also tell you this, show up to church. No such thing as a virtual kiss. I don't care what Mark Zuckerberg says. You got to be present if you're going to get a smooch. <laughs> There's something remarkably significant about being bodily present, and you can see why. The testimony that each and every one of us bear by virtue of being here, that we do not believe alone, and we have not believed in vain. You want to resist earthly Babylon? Show up to the worship of heavenly Zion, where the Father embraces us in the Son by the Spirit, and we extend the bonds of love in a world that is characterized by deceit and cruelty. And that's how he ends. The peace that we enjoy with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace to all who are in Christ Jesus we think of peace and we think of a, a frail truce, a reluctant ceasefire. It's all over the news, right? Peace talks have stopped. And you're like, well, even if they continue, it's two sides who absolutely hate each other. And maybe they're going to reluctantly lay down their arms to usher into a period of tentative quiet. That's what we think of when we think of peace. The Father set forth the Son to remove wrath entirely and to convince of love supremely. Peace, the absent of curse and the full presence of blessing. Peace, you enjoy peace with God. This is true. All those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ are made participants in the Son whom the Father loves, delights in, only gives blessings to. The Father looks at you the way he looks at the Son. The peace we enjoy with God is the foundation 
for our dealings with one another in love, our dealings with one another pursuing the bonds of peace. And this God has been pleased to do. This is the true grace of God. In Jesus Christ, elect. In Jesus Christ, exiles. In Jesus Christ, the children of God until the day when Christ returns and we see what we have believed is true. Press on in faith, beloved. Press on in hope, beloved. Press on in love, beloved. It is a well-spent journey. Those seven day deaths lay between. Let's pray. We thank you for the clear testimony unto this great grace. We thank you that servants from time immemorial have borne witness, not just to the content of the faith, but to its power and efficacy as your servants have yielded their lives for heavenly Jerusalem, despised by the iterations of dust and ashes everywhere on display around us. We give you thanks that it is not an unclear testimony, that it is plain. And we give you thanks that the Spirit delights to inflame our hearts with light to see that indeed this is true. We pray you would continue to sustain us in this truth, that you would continue to build us up in this truth as we come to understand what is the height and the depth and the breadth of the love that you have poured out upon us in Christ Jesus, thus being rooted and grounded in love. We become complete, growing up into every good work. We pray you would do these things for your glory and our good. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.